Chapter 4, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 4, Part 1 Conditions of Life. The chapter begins with this quote from Eigenrack quote, The ideal state is one in which every citizen is content with the laws under which he lives. If any body of men in a state agitate for a change of laws, dissatisfaction is proven to exist, and by this much is the state disordered and unenviable. To produce universal satisfaction is possible only by meeting out to every citizen the same measures. The slightest inequality produces disturbance, for only under equality are the parts free from strain and hence in repose. The state in equilibrium has then reached perfection in its political system. Eigenrack. Amid so much that is marvelous in American history, nothing stands out with greater prominence than the rapid amelioration of the conditions of life. A century ago, the continent of America was, for the most part, a wilderness. A long strip of the Atlantic coast was sparsely populated and a few towns were unevenly sprinkled over the narrow territory. But behind this, the country was in the same wild condition as when the Pilgrim Fathers landed a hundred and fifty years before. There were few roads through the backwoods, and the inhabitants of Massachusetts were as widely divided from those of Virginia as from those of the old home, all intercommunication of the colonies being by coasting vessels. After independence, 1776, however, the young nation, full of the enthusiasm and hot blood of youth, vigorously applied itself to the development of the country. Canals and turnpike roads were built, and by 1830 there were open for use 115,000 miles of highway, and upwards of 2,000 miles of canals, the latter costing upwards of $65 million, 13 million pounds. Canals and turnpikes were then the mighty forces of civilization, the wonderful means of locomotion. Eight miles per hour by the mail coach and six miles per hour by the express packet upon the raging canal. What was the world coming to? Notwithstanding this, the country was very backward, and there was little, considered in the light of modern comforts, to make life worth living. In the newspapers of the time, and in books written by travelers, we get faint glimpses of the inconveniences under which the past generation labored, but the full significance of many a little statement written fifty years ago is not to be realized in these days of luxurious refinement and elegant ease. Here, for example, is an extract from Niles' Register, March twentieth, 1830. A letter written in Baltimore has been replied to from Norfolk in 41 hours, a distance of about 400 miles, by steam. The note of exclamation appended to the statement seems oddly incongruous in these days of telegraphs, telephones, and penny postage. The difficulty of communication in those early days is further exemplified by the statement in the American Quarterly Observer for July 1834 that, a package of books can be more readily sent from Boston to London than to Cincinnati. A book printed in Boston has been republished in Edinburgh before it has reached Cincinnati. And here are a few passages from Miss Martineau's Society in America, date 1834-35. to 35. 
The great cities are even yet ill-supplied from the country. Provisions are very dear. Butcher's meat throughout the country is far inferior to what it will be when an increased amount of labour and means of transport shall encourage improvements in the pasturage and care of stock. While fowls, butter and eggs are still sent from Vermont into Boston, there is no such thing to be had there as a joint of tender meat. In one house in Boston, where a very numerous family lives in handsome style, and where I several times met large dinner parties, I never saw an ounce of meat except ham. The table was covered with birds in great variety and well cooked, but all winged creatures. The only tender, juicy meat I saw in the country was a sirloin of beef at Charleston, and the whole provision of a gentleman's table in Kentucky. At one place there was nothing but veal on the table for a month. In a town where I stayed ten days, nothing was to be had but beef, and throughout the South the traveller meets with little else than pork, under all manner of disguises and fowls. Miss Martineau, writing from Philadelphia, further remarks that all the ladies of a country town, not very far off, were wearing gloves too bad to be mended, or none at all, because none had come up by the canal for many weeks. At Washington, I wanted some ribbon for my straw bonnet, and in the whole place, in the season, I could find only six pieces of ribbon to choose from. She would find sixty shops today, each filled with ribbon. Throughout the entire country, out of the cities, I was struck with the discomforts of broken windows which appeared on every side. Large farmhouses flourishing in every other respect had dismal-looking windows. Persons who happen to live near a canal or other quiet, watery road have baskets of glass of various sizes sent to them from the towns and glaze their own windows. But there is no bringing glass over a corduroy or mud or rough limestone road, and those who have no other highways must get along with such windows as it may please the weather and the children to leave them. Even so late as 1845, this isolation was the lot of all who lived at a distance from the coast. Sir Charles Lau, visiting Milledgeville, Georgia, in that year, relates that the landlady of the hotel regarded Lady Lyle as quite a curiosity because she did not know how to make soap, and the good dame told her how the maids make almost everything in the house, even to the caps I wear. And it appears from contemporary records that soap and candles were homemade for many years after and homespun cloth was largely worn by the people. In the rural districts of New England at present, many houses still have in their garrets the old family's spinning wheel and loom. William Cobbett, writing in 1823 of Long Island, says, There, and indeed all over the American states, north of Maryland, and especially in the New England states, almost the whole of both linen and woolen used in the country and a large part of that used in towns, is made in the farmhouses. There are thousands and thousands of families who never use either, except of their own making. All but the weaving is done by the family. There is a loom in the house, and the weaver goes from house to house. I once saw about three thousand farmers, or rather country people, at a horse race in Long Island, and my opinion was that there were not five hundred who were not dressed in homespun coats. 
As to linen, no farmer's family thinks of buying linen. The discomforts of life to those in settled districts were few and slight compared with those experienced by settlers who went west. Of these, a writer in De Beau's Review in 1825 says, Their journey was made after long preparation, and was toilsome, slow, and expensive. They were compelled to bring their heavy tools and bulky implements of husbandry, their kitchen utensils and fragile furniture, by a difficult navigation and over heavy roads. Several years were required to make a small clearing, rude improvements, and enough coarse food for domestic use. And after all this effort, the conditions of life often accorded with those indicated in the following laconic dialogue. Whose house was that you bought? Mogs. What's the soil? Bogs. What's the climate? Fogs. What do you get to eat? Hogs. What do you build your house of? Logs. Have you any neighbors? Frogs. Though this is a playful exaggeration, there were many settlers whose lot was scarcely more enviable than that of the man who lived amid the bogs he bought of Moggs. Far removed from all means of communication, the Western pioneer was practically cut off from the world. No ubiquitous postal system enabled him to keep up communications with his friends down east or in the old country. Newspapers rarely penetrated into the wild regions where he lived, and if he wished to visit his nearest neighbor, he had to ride many miles across a rough and often hostile country. The traveler on the western rivers occasionally saw a solitary individual, perhaps a woman, paddling upstream in a canoe to visit a neighbor twenty or thirty miles off. Letters to the settlers were sent to the nearest town, perhaps a hundred miles away, where they lay for months until the person they were destined for, or some neighbor, could find time to go for them. The rates of postage in those days were very high. A letter of one sheet was carried any distance not exceeding thirty miles for six cents, and this sum was doubled or trebled if the letter consisted of two or three sheets. For any distance exceeding four hundred miles, the charge was twenty-five cents, one shilling, per sheet a sum which then had double the purchasing power it has today. Primitive simplicity prevailed in municipal arrangements where these existed. A notice copied from the walls of the barroom of the village inn at Sandisford, Massachusetts in 1833 well illustrates this. All persons who have neglected to pay their taxes or bills committed to Josiah H. Sage, collector, are hereby notified that in consequence of the sickness of said collector, the bills are at my house, where those who are willing can have opportunity to pay their taxes if they improve it soon, and those who neglect may expect to pay a constable with fee for collecting. Scavenging was done by pigs which were allowed to run at large through the streets. Sir Charles Lyell describes them as going about Cincinnati in large numbers, no person in particular claiming ownership of them. Even in New York, these scavengers were long tolerated on the sidewalks because of their supposed usefulness. It was no uncommon thing thirty-five years ago for pedestrians to be thrust into the road by the dirty snout of some city hog, a newly imported Irishman declared, on being so pushed into the gutter that it was, 
a strange country where the pigs were all loose and the stones all tied. The streets of the towns were usually unlighted at night. New York, however, used in 1830 35,000 gallons of oil for 299 street lamps, besides gas. In a description of Cincinnati in 1831, a writer in the New England magazine says, Every citizen who ventures abroad when the moon is absent carries his own lantern or runs the risk of breaking his neck. It is a curious sight to see the lights hurrying about in all directions, passing, repassing, and flitting to and fro, as if dancing at the masquerade of a genie. New York in 1837 was destitute of a supply of good and wholesome water. There were numerous wells with pumps in all parts of the city, but the pump water was generally considered deleterious. Rainwater was largely used by the citizens, most of the houses being provided with good cisterns. A contemporary writer says, Many parts of the city are now supplied with water for the table, brought from the upper wards in casks. On the east and north rivers, in some instances it is pure, and in others its goodness is but little better than the present well water. The tables of the wealthy are supplied from this source, while the poorer classes have to resort to such wells and pumps as are in their neighborhood. It has been ascertained that there are now brought to the city by water carts 600 hogsheads, for which there is paid $1.25 for each hogshead, or about one cent per gallon, amounting to $750 per day, or $273,750 per annum, for water from that source. It is not surprising that under such conditions New York, now one of the best watered cities in the world, suffered several severe epidemics of cholera, which in 1832 raged to a fearful extent, nearly depopulating it. Indeed, the supply of New York is equal to that of monster London, so that the New Yorker uses more than double the quantity of water used by the Londoner. The stupendous character of the works undertaken in America is shown by this water supply question of New York. A subway, averaging 250 feet below the surface, large enough for a double-track railway, and more than 30 miles long, is now being constructed to increase the supply of the Empire City. Five miles are already done, and it is expected that the entire work will be finished in three years from the date of letting the contract. In a couple of years, therefore, the water supply of New York will be 400 million gallons per diem, or four times that now consumed by London. The world has long heard of a projected channel tunnel between Dover and Calais. Here is a longer tunnel of equal size being quietly constructed, and scarcely anything said about it. Other towns were as badly off in regard to water supply, a circumstance which acquires prominence when viewed in connection with the great fires which periodically destroyed large portions of the towns of the Union. Contributing to these frequent disasters was the imperfect apparatus at that date for extinguishing fires. So inoperative were the fire engines that, in the report of a fire at New Orleans, in Niles Register for May 8, 1830, it was related that, though within 100 yards of the Mississippi, little water was to be had. It was not until 1853 that the steam fire engine was made a practical machine, and it was much later before it came into general use. Now, the equipment of the Fire Brigade of America is the most perfect in the world. 
electric communication between all quarters of towns and between many houses and numerous fire stations exist everywhere, and a minute after a fire is reported by pressing an electric button, half a dozen steam fire engines are speeding from different quarters towards the fire. In many towns, the same pressure of an electric button, which is made to sound an alarm on gongs in a dozen different fire stations, also starts machinery, which releases the horses from their halters, allows the harness to fall on their backs, and raises the stable gates. In the early days, when men had an entire continent to bring into subjection, and when the work of doing this was doubly difficult through the imperfection of machinery, the business of life was work work in its most Carlilean sense of intense, unrelaxed labor. Men had no time to waste in fashionable frivolity, and even the graver kinds of amusement were, except in the older cities of the East, little indulged in. Mrs. Trollope, a name long discordant to American ears, commented on this circumstance. I never saw any people who appeared to live so much without amusement as the Cincinnatians. Billiards are forbidden by law, so are cards. To sell a pack of cards in Ohio subjects the seller to a penalty of fifty dollars. They have no public balls, excepting, I think, six during the Christmas holidays. They have no concerts. They have no dinner parties. To this emphatic never is probably required the Sullivan-Gilbert qualification, hardly ever. To say that the people of Cincinnati fifty years ago never went to balls, never attended concerts, never dined out, is obviously straining the literal truth. Still, it is unquestionable that social recreations were few and far between in those days. Although facts prove that the general standard of comfort was necessarily very much lower in the early part of the period we are considering than now, there yet prevailed a degree of general well-being unknown at the same time in Europe. Arfidsson, a Swedish traveler who visited the country in 1832-34, to has thus placed on record his impressions. A European, traveling in this direction, New York State, cannot help admiring the general appearance of comfort and prosperity so singularly striking. To an inhabitant of the Scandinavian peninsula, accustomed to different scenes, it is peculiarly gratifying to witness, instead of gorgeous palaces by the side of poor huts, a row of neat country houses inhabited by independent farmers. A Swedish servant, lately arrived in America at the date in question, on looking round and perceiving the happy state so generally diffused, exclaimed, with surprise and characteristic simplicity, Sir, have the goodness to inform me where the peasantry live in this country. In works on America written about this period, we everywhere find expressions of surprise at the absence of beggars. Sir Charles Lyell, inquiring in his first visit in 1840, to what combination of causes the success of national education is to be attributed, and replying to his own query, makes a statement which is here relevant. He says, First, there is no class in want or extreme poverty here, partly because the facility of migrating to the West for those who are without employment is so great, and also in part from the check to improvident marriages created by the high standard of living 
to which the lowest people aspire, a standard which education is raising higher and higher from day to day. As a further result of this universal prosperity, there was less crime than in the older countries where life was difficult. The number of persons apprehended by the police of the City of London in 1832 was 72,824. The population of London being 20 times that of Boston, the same proportion would give for Boston 3,641, instead of the actual number 1,904. But probably the greatest contrast of all was that between the low status of the factory operatives in England and the high status of the same class in America. In England, 40 years ago, the factory hand was a mere machine, a drudge, ill-fed, ill-housed, addicted to low pleasures, with no hope on earth and scant knowledge of heaven. In America, the female operatives were usually farmers' daughters who entered the factory to make a little money with which to set up housekeeping when they married. Their intellectual status is shown by the fact that at Lowell, Massachusetts, a magazine was published consisting entirely of articles and poems written by girls employed in the factories. By a judicious superintendence, their morals were cared for, none being permitted to live in unauthorized lodging houses, and the result was that the girls of the Lowell factories were celebrated as much for their virtue as for their intellectual superiority. Unfortunately, all this has changed. Immigrant operatives from Europe came in and supplanted those of New England, and at the present time, the condition of the American factory hand, though decidedly better than that of the European operative, is said to be not nearly so high as it was 40 years ago. The glimpses we are thus able to obtain of this period of 55 years ago, 1830, show us a people scattered for the most part along the Atlantic seaboard. A few aggregations of people at Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore had made good their claim to rank as cities. The roads of America still, with some exceptions, the worst perhaps in the civilized world, were then only dirt lanes, almost impassable during the rainy season, but excellent in summer and during the hard frosts of winter. Stagecoaches ran between the cities at intervals which to us seem absurdly rare, and sailing packets, propelled by steam, and on the canals express packets, drawn by horses, divided the passenger traffic with the stagecoaches. Enterprising pioneers had pushed westward beyond the Alleghenies into the Ohio Valley, and even as far as the plains of Illinois. The emigrant traveled in his own wagons to his new home in the then far west. During the long and hazardous journey, his family lived the life of roaming gypsies. The people's dress was of the cheapest and simplest character. A rough cazonet cloth was used for the best dress of the men, and few women out of the principal cities aspired to a silk gown. In 1830, cotton calico was worn by most women, even of the well-to-do class. The servant problem, today such a difficult one to the American housewife, was much easier of solution then, for, as there were fewer foreign women available for domestic service, Native Americans had to be employed. These were not called servants, but help, and it was the custom for them to sit at the family table and in other ways to be treated as equals and members of the family. Such an arrangement was hardly an inconvenience where so much simplicity of life prevailed. A repugnance then existed to all distinctions in dress. 
No coachman was ever seen in livery, nor did servants dress in any prescribed fashion. Concerning this trait, Miss Martineau writes, One laughable peculiarity at the British legation at Washington was the confusion of tongues among the servants, who asked you to take fish, flesh, and fowl in Spanish, Italian, German, Dutch, Irish, or French. The foreign ambassadors are terribly plagued about servants. No American will wear livery, and there is no reason why any American should. But the British ambassador must have livery servants. He makes what compromise he can, allowing his people to appear without livery out of doors, except on state occasions, but he is obliged to pick up his domestics from among foreigners who are in want of subsistence for a short time, and are sure to go away as soon as they can find employment in which the wearing of a livery is not a requisite. Such was the repugnance to livery that policemen dressed like ordinary citizens. Even New York City did not give its police a distinctive dress until 1845. Other cities followed later, until now it would be difficult to distinguish the police force in any American city from the Metropolitan Police of London. Coachmen's liveries are less gaudy in America than in Europe. We have not yet adopted powdered-haired coachmen and flunkies with stuffed cabs, nor brilliantly colored coaches. I remember well that when the Pennsylvania Railroad Company decided that conductors and passenger train men upon its lines should be distinguished from passengers by a uniform official dress, serious doubts were entertained whether the requirement would not lead to universal refusal to wear livery. In this case, as with the police force, the obvious advantage of the men in authority being known at once by their uniform was finally recognized by the employees. It is a sentiment well worth humoring, however, this dislike to distinctive badges, except when clearly useful. Unless so, let Republican citizens be independent and differ even in dress. There was scarcely a private carriage in western cities in those days. People rode on horseback or in rude wagons, or, at best, in one-horse chaises. An old lady, living not long since, and one whom I knew well and honored, kept the first carriage in Pittsburgh and the lady who first had a coachman in livery, he was a colored man fond of display, is still in her prime. If the dress, conveniences, and homes of the people were of the simplest character, so was the food. It was, however, very cheap. Eggs were three halfpence a dozen, and a leg of lamb cost only a shilling. Foreign wine was so rare and costly as to be almost unknown. The importations of wine in 1831 amounted to only a million and a half dollars. Barter was a common mode of payment. Workmen, even in cities, received orders upon a store for their labor. Wages were generally low. Laborers received 62 cents, three shillings, per day, and two dollars, eight shillings, per day, was long considered remarkably high wages, and was given only to very skillful workmen. Salaries were even lower in proportion. The late president of the Great Pennsylvania Railroad received only $1,500, 300 pounds, per annum, as late as 1855, when he was superintendent of the Western Division of the line. I was overwhelmed when, as his successor, I received 50 pounds more per annum. Notwithstanding low wages, the regularity of work and the simplicity of life enabled the people to save considerable sums every year. Such as there was of fashion was in the direction of the plainest living, 
and in opposition to ostentation in residence, furniture, dress, food, or equipage. It was Republican to be plain, simple, unaffected, and of the people. Kid gloves, dress coats, and silk dresses were hardly known west of the Alleghenies. There were no millionaires in those days. Men with fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, ten thousand to twenty thousand pounds, were spoken of throughout the country as the millionaire is now. Indeed, there are probably more millionaires in New York City today than there were men in the whole country in 1830 who were worth a hundred thousand dollars. The first pianoforte manufactory was founded in 1822, but was so insignificant that in 1853 it turned out only 15 pianos a week. Few carriages were made till 1840. Works of art were rarely seen. The first picture gallery of any consequence was that of the Pennsylvania Academy, Philadelphia, opened in 1811. Other cities remained, till a recent date, without important art collections. Libraries existed in colleges and in the public buildings of the state capital, but few collections of books were accessible to the people. Previous to 1830, only three or four cities had such libraries, and these were unimportant. In those days, every village and country district had its universal genius who could turn his hand to anything, from drawing a tooth to mending a clock. The doctor of divinity had usually the functions of doctor of medicine as well. The doctor of the body had no brother doctor of the soul, he was both himself. The lawyer was attorney, counselor, real estate agent, banker and barrister in one. With increasing population, handicrafts and professions had become specialized, and communities, however small, are now generally well supplied with men trained to their special vocations to which they confine themselves. End of chapter 4, part 1, Conditions of Life